ladies and gents. I'm Lana. Joining me is Jason Kuna, author of Born Guilty. We're going to discuss the ways in which anti-whiteness is being pushed on white children. It is abusive on the deepest levels. What are the long-term psychological and emotional effects of children who have been raised in anti-white programming? Stick around and find out. Jason, aka No White Guilt, welcome to the program. Thank you, Lana. It's fantastic to be here. So you released a new book, Born Guilty, 700 pages. Look at that. That's, that's good stuff there. How long did that take you? Actually, there's quite a story behind that because that it was uh, roughly eight years ago. Oh. And uh, I have been in the movement for really, I, can, I guess I can say the whole of my life. I began fighting for the cause uh, for white well-being, which I didn't call that the name then. I coined that later. Uh, as one of the dialectics that I give to people that uh, is very powerful when advancing our message. But I really took up the calls for our people at the age of 11. And uh, yeah, when I was in seventh grade. And that's a story uh, in and of itself. That's a story that's contained in Born Guilty. It's called Crucible. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been quite the ride uh, since since then to to now. It's a very powerful cover too. tell us about that. Well, that is, uh, in you know, it's a lot like with a lot of the material in the book, in that it was uh, objected to by a lot of the people I shared the idea with. They said, "Oh no, that's that's too graphic. It's, p- people are going to be turned off by that. It's not going to be, you know." And the material inside the book, I, I worked a lot of things, and, and just as, as I was saying, it was roughly uh, eight years ago that I finally decided that I am just going to do things the way I think they should be done. I'm, I, there needs to be an organizational entity that needs to function a certain way. It needs to provide people with uh, specific dialectics that empower them, the average person, so that they can take this argument of white positivity, of white well-being to their friends and family and have success with them, have success with bringing them over to our cause. And I had been recommending these things throughout the years. I started joining organizations and assisting organizations that were implicitly and explicitly uh, in service to white well-being. And I made these recommendations to a lot of the uh, elders of these organizations. But I was I was a respectful young man. And when they said, well, no, that's not the way to go, Jason, that's not the way to do things. You need to do them like X, Y or Z. I just obeyed. But over the years, I saw that, indeed, a lot of the ideas that I had, a lot of the recommendations that I had for these individuals that I implemented on an individual basis. I even did some pretty big experiments in towns uh, in Virginia, for example, uh, to see how this messaging would work relative to other messaging. And I finally decided about eight years ago that, you know, I I have to put something together that is going to serve in a way uh, that uh, will be beneficial in the long run for our people, not another set of uh, diagnoses and then and then prescriptions, but uh, something quite different. And part of that was a big part of it was the creation of this book, Born Guilty. So it, in its scope, it was absolutely colossal when I sat down to do it. And people said, no, 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 just like they did with this cover. No, no, no. That, that's it's it's too experimental. It's too different. It's not going to work. But 
everything in my gut said that it would and everything thus oh, far that cover is perfect it's it's absolutely powerful it's almost like that time magazine cover is your baby racist and it shows the white baby you know this is like the flip side of that i think it's very powerful it's perfect Right. You know, well, thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. In your book, you get into, you know, your struggle under the uh, psychological abuse of growing up in a society that's obsessed with anti-white uh, ideology. It's really a coming of age memoir with a parallel story. For me, it's hard to remember some of my first encounters with anti-whiteness, although it's there, you know, looking back, you kind of discover that all the, the subliminal messages that are planted along the way. But for you, you said at 11, you started being aware of these things. So tell us how you came into that at such a young age. Actually, it was before 11. 11 wow. was when I began asking the questions. Uh, and that was in junior high school in uh, Northern Virginia outside of Washington, D.C. So that's seventh and eighth grade. So roughly 11 to 13 years of age. And that's where I really finally took my stance and dedicated my life to our people. No, when I first noticed this and I serendipitous or, or a curse, what have you, uh, purely by chance. It was in preschool. Of course, I didn't know what it was at the time. I didn't know what was happening. But uh, I, I share the story in Born Guilty. Essentially, the crux of it is that I was in one of my classrooms in preschools, non-denominational Christian preschool. And the we had two teachers. They brought in this very large flip chart. And on the flip chart, they were teaching us good and bad behavior. And the the to do so it was cartoon characters large cartoon characters that were on this flip chart and i noticed that all of the cartoon characters that were doing uh, engaged in the bad behavior pulling hair stealing toys pushing in line this sort of thing they were all white little boys just like me and all of the victims of the bad behavior were non-white children non-white little boys non-white little girls and i thought to myself i know all of these kids here i know that uh, not only me and the other white ones do naughty things, but the non-white ones do. In fact, they do more naughty things <laughs> than we do. Uh, so having noticed that, it was sort of like I noticed sort of like the devil's, and it's odd place to notice this too in, in, in this non-denominational Christian preschool, but it's sort of like I noticed like the, the tips of the devil's horns there because that put me on a trail. And then I noticed in the songs that we sang, these unusual songs at these Christian uh, preschool uh, about all the races being the same. And I thought, isn't that curious? Because we're, we're clearly not all the same. Uh, and then, of course, that made me notice the same sort of uh, demonization of our people in commercials, in movies, in televisions, in stories that we were taught, in history lessons. But I never really, I mean, I would, I would kind of ask uh, here and there Cub Scout leaders and teachers in elementary school, maybe a question here or there about it, but nothing really deep and great, at which point I really began asking my peers, the administrators, my teachers, uh, isn't this an issue, I would say to them, that you have set up a moral system that says that it is immoral to work for the well-being of whites, because the inverse of that, the reverse of that, means that it is moral to work harm on our people, our community, our country, our culture. And I was I was very innocent because I thought I had been taught like the rest of us that these these people who behaved in what 
now I clearly identify as anti-white behavior, they were things, they were people who were called bleeding hearts. They just cared too much about everybody. They just wanted to help the downtrodden. And so that was the thought process I had. But the responses told me something very different. These were not people who were caring. These were people who were intent on harming us in, in Western civilization. And so that, and not only that, but I was innocent and yet I was being called a racist. I was being likened to Adolf Hitler. I was being likened to the Ku Klux Klan. And I was just this 11-year-old child that couldn't possibly have any association or knowledge of these things. So, now, were you in a white school or was it already pretty diverse? Well, it's diverse. It was predominantly white. But the thing at that school that made it a little different was they bust in the uh, non-white students who were too bad for other schools. Mm. They would bust them from whatever whatever school they had been kicked out of to our school. And now where that made a serious issue was we had an anti-white administration that was already implementing these ideas of the equality of outcome in punishment at schools. So that's more of like something they talk about today where where they talk about why is there this difference in punishment? Everybody's the same, so non-whites shouldn't be punished any more than, than white kids. As a consequence, what they did was at, at my junior high school was they removed the punishment for fighting. They would just pull the students apart and then send them to their classes. Every now and again, if you were especially bad, you might get a 30-minute detention after school, maybe even an hour after school. But people didn't get suspended for bashing each other's heads in. I mean, there were fights all the time at the school. And it was largely perpetuated by these, these miscreant kids that were bust from wherever they lived, whatever housing project it was, to our school where we were at. And, and it was, as I say, and you see in the book, it was a vehemently anti-white environment. So it didn't take long for me to realize that there was no accident here uh, at my school, that these people meant harm to our people. And that's when I dedicated my life to, I knew I couldn't, no matter what my talents or whatever I achieved in life, I knew I wouldn't be able to save our people. I wasn't, I wasn't silly in that, in that sense. But what I thought I could do was I could contribute to freeing our people of what I later termed anti-whiteism. And by freeing them, I would release the powerful Western spirit within our people and then smarter people, better looking people, better uh, resource, better capitalized uh, people would be able to, white people would be able to stand up and really make change for us. Now, so it really, really started for me all yeah. the way back in, in preschool. That's amazing. Now, were your parents an influence at all? They were a, my, both of my parents were, I guess you could consider them like run of the mill conservatives. Uh, and with that, with that real genuine sort of bent of white people that everything has to be fair. So they weren't, they weren't the kind of conservative that would say, uh, affirmative action is, is okay because, uh, non-whites need this, this leg up, uh, to be fair. No, they would say, no, it's not fair for there to be such a thing as affirmative action because you have to discriminate against, uh, white people in order to bring non-white people who don't deserve to be there into the position or into the school, into the job, into the promotion, whatever it is. So they weren't 
white positive in in the sense that they were concerned about the survival or well-being of our people. They were your typical run-of-the-mill American conservatives. And so when I began standing up and fighting for these things, there there was a, you know, a lot of bit of a lot of tension in the home uh, because of the the hardship that it 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 brought to uh, to me and to my parents as a consequence. But they also knew they had a child on their hands that wasn't going to be easily intimidated out of this what I then considered to be the most important reason to live. Uh, so there was a there were a lot of attempts to I guess. Uh, tamp it down. There were a lot of attempts to, to get me to cool down a little bit, but, uh, it just, it just wouldn't work. They <laughs> knew that they would have a wrecked family on their hands. In fact, uh, I, I told my mother, uh, at, during that time frame that I was going to fight for our people. And if she opposed that, then I would have no mother. And so that was the, wow. that was the sort of, uh, situation that was established. Uh, by by my desire to to do right by our people and their desire to have a peaceful family uh, and and home in which to live. So we have a lot of new people coming on board all the time. So I think it's always important to go over some of the basics, the, the 101 stuff, you know, newcomers who come here and they want to watch and know what you're talking about. So we're talking about anti-whiteness a lot and how it's pushed on children. Maybe we can give some examples of what anti-whiteness being pushed on white kids is. How does that translate? Well, first of all, the the anti-whites push their what I refer to as meme pathogens, these ideas that undermine our well-being. They push it on our children because children can be made to believe anything. An anti-white ideology requires you to jump through these flaming illogical hoops to come to this anti-white conclusion in the end. And really, it's just enforced with power. So it's just a justification for uh, the power that is behind the scenes. They use pretexts, what I call the myths of pretext. It's moralization, intellectualization, and sentimentalization. And for a long time, these pretexts worked very well. They could hide behind the pretexts to serve their ultimate goal, which was really just to inflict harm on Western kind and Western civilization. The way it infects our children, and this is the worst part of it, and this is part of what I really dedicated my life to, was that this is the this is a child abuse, a physical, mental, and spiritual child abuse that is unparalleled in world history because they are teaching white children. And this is the one thing that if, if new viewers, if they don't take anything away from this, to really try to appreciate is that they are teaching young white children that there is no legitimate right for them to exist because the only legitimate and good white person is an anti-white white person. That's a delegitimization of their right to exist. And that is to say that you are from an evil people, that you don't deserve to be here, that everything that you work for and achieve in life has somehow been stolen. There is no deeper and more cruel way to handicap and undermine a person, especially a child, uh, than, than doing that, than teaching them that they are from an evil people, that they carry this seed of evil inside of them, and that they have to spend the rest of their lives compensating uh, for that evil that is carried within them. 
Yeah, I mean, recently I've seen some outrageous articles. I mean, it's absolutely abusive to children to tell them, you know, your ancestors were rotten, you basically have a racist gene, you're prone to be sexist and homophobic, and and all the labels that you show on here, you know, it's always pushed on Mm -hmm. white people. I actually have heard liberals talking about, well, we know the one I just did a video about, uh, about, you know, having white families to begin with is racist and upholding white supremacy. So the very existence of white kids. But then there was also this other writer, I think Noah Berlaski, I believe he's Jewish, and he was talking about how he felt uh, guilt uh, because he was sending his child to a white school that ultimately, (laughs) yeah, and he was quoting another uh, psychologist who was saying basically that social justice is more more important. Sometimes you want the best for your white children, but that you shouldn't do that because it's producing inequality. So, for instance, uh, if you have a lot of wealth and you want to leave that to your your child, your white child, you shouldn't because that's inequality. You should give it away to other people's kids. I mean, this is outrageous insanity to me how these people are talking about treating their own children as less than putting everyone else's non-white children up on a pedestal because they think they're evening out some kind of inequality. I mean, what do you think about this? Well, that you just spoke directly to what I talk about when I am talking about the myths of pretexts. That was sort of a combination of the intellectualization and moralization of pretexts. That's what we really have to understand, and that's one of the things I really try to drive home for people that's so important, is to not engage anti-whites in their pretexts. That's what they want you to do. They want you to uh, debate them on the point that they're making rather than on the objective they're trying to achieve, which is some sort of infliction of harm. It's, an, it's to inflict harm to get a white parent to not uh, be, be good to their children, to get a white parent to not leave an inheritance to their children. They don't want you to talk about that. They want you to talk about the reasons why, the pretexts why that should be done. What the listeners should do is, and this is the easiest thing they can do, when confronted with these anti-white pretexts, and it's 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 very important to not attempt to really uh, engage them on these pretexts, because number one, would you engage a liar on the li- on a liar's pretexts? Would you really debate that? You would be a fool to do so, and that's what that's what you are when you debate them on their pretexts. It is to be a fool. Number two, you have your entire life learned how to lose these discussions. The media, news and entertainment media, academia have all taught you how to lose these debates. And they've taught the anti-whites how to win these debates. Your subconscious mind is full of these mean pathogens. So not only are you trying to debate the person in front of you that is bringing the argument toward you, but you're also having the conflict with your subconscious mind. Everything that you have imbibed over the course of your life. And the deeper, this is an important thing, the deeper those things are seated in your mind, the more more power they exert over who and what you are as as a person. So back to what I was saying a moment ago, when confronted with these pretexts, you simply say to the anti-white, if you're if you have an anti-white conclusion, I reject your argument no matter what it is. If your conclusion is going to inflict harm on Western kind or Western civilization, I reject it no matter how sentimental your argument is, no matter how moral you claim it to be, no matter how intellectual you claim it to be, end of discussion. And I will tell you that if you get them uh, on their heels as anti-whites, you will win the debate every time. There have been 
just it's almost like a it becoming like a tsunami for me of people coming back to me who are employing my dialectics, the one that I, I, I talk a lot about them in in Born Guilty. And I talk a lot about them uh, in Go Free specifically, uh, which is where I, I lay out these dialectics. Uh, that was my, my first book, Go Free, and I'm working on a second edition now. We, we will be making videos as well to go along with it. But it is vitally, critically important. We don't have a lot of time left to continue to engage in these uh, unproductive, uh, broken tactics of argumentation and of persuasion. When the anti-white says, like you, like you said there, it, is, it, it produces an inequality when a white parent does better by non-white parents, and then the, then the conservative or Sivnat or what have you, otherwise white positive person says, well, what we need to have happen is these non-white parents need to know you've already lost the debate. You've already lost it. You just immediately say anything that is going to result in, in the infliction of harm on my people or my civilization is rejected. Now, justify to me, Mr. or Mrs. Anti-White, why we should inflict harm. And you'll win that discussion every single time. Exactly. It is harm. It is abuse. If you talk to psychologists, they'll talk about guilt, how carrying guilt and shame is a negative and a bad thing and how you shouldn't do it. But then they turn around a lot of these lefties and even psychologists. All of a sudden, they support pushing all of this white guilt and shame even on children. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, precisely because of the power that it inflicts on them. What happens when you are infected with these mean pathogens is when white people are infected with these mean pathogens. An example of a mean pathogen is that you're from uh, and that your people is evil and that you're fr you, you, know, you, you are born of an evil people. You have this evil seed in you that you have to make amends for. Another one is that diversity is strength. When you are when you have these inflicted upon you and they seat themselves in your subconscious mind, it works the exact same way that any uh, system of morals works in that you end up policing yourself from your subconscious mind. The subconscious mind does this the same way it does uh, by learning how to ride a bicycle or learning how to drive a car. In the beginning, there is conscious effort to do these things. You have to remember how to do them. But after a while, the subconscious mind has memorized it all and then does it for you at the speed of light compared to your conscious mind. What ends up happening is once your once your subconscious mind is infected with all of these different ideas, th this horrific panoply of anti-white ideas, you uh, experience what we refer to as white noir, which is the, the physical, the mental, the psychological, and the spiritual uh, harm, the, 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 the sickness of anti-white ideology in us. And that induces, th these, this white noir induces bad decision-making, it, uh, it induces even even sort of psychoses, neuroses as well. We see this developing in our people. The worse the, the brainwashing, the worse this infliction of harm uh, gets. And as I say, you can convince a child that there is such a thing as Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. So it is equally as easy to convince them that diversity is strength. That's why they go after the children. And they then, they then grow up and people wonder, well, why is it that the, the children are so rebellious? Why is it? You know, th there's even this notion now uh, in our across the West uh, in our race 
that it's natural for the for children to want to fight their parents. That's not natural at all. There is no historical precedent for for children always wanting to turn against their parents. No, the reason why children turn against their parents in the West and the reason why it seems like it is uh, like it stems from time immemorial is because we have had generation after generation whose white parents have allowed anti-whites to rear their children and then those children come back as enemies of their parents, enemies of everything their parents stand for. And it's this incrementalism toward a increasingly anti-white dystopian environment. That's why we always have the rebellion. No, there, there is always this energy in the youth to do more, to surpass what their elders have done. But it is not natural to want to destroy your elders, to want to rebel against them. That's where we also end up with these ideas that are just unconscionable to me that you don't teach your children your moral system. No other race of people says this. Only white people say, no, well, I will uh, allow my child to experience all of these different notions, and then I will allow my child to come to his or her own conclusion. Come to their own conclusion. Where else do you allow them to do that? And how are they going to come to proper conclusions as children? I mean, this is it is so preposterous. No, you you take the child and you teach them what the world is made of, what the people in the world are doing, what they are up to. You teach them the truth. And when you get to the child before the anti-whites do and you inoculate them, and this is something I teach and go free, you inoculate them. And I again, I talk about it in Born Guilty. You inoculate them against what the anti-whites are going to say. When you are able to say to them, hey, the anti-whites are going to say X, Y, Z, and then the child goes out into the world and the anti-whites say X, Y, Z, what happens? The child doesn't come back to you and say, what a jerk you are. I need to rebel against you. The child comes back to you and says, you're some kind of a divine being. You were able to predict everything that these people were saying. You're able to tell me what their motivations are. And I, too, can see it. I, too, now have seen it in the world. And they are that much you become, as a consequence, that much more of a bonded and united family and therefore a bonded and united people against those outside of the community who are attempting and are indeed inflicting this harm. Exactly. You arm them with the truth. I mean, how many times looking back, you know, for some of us who are older, looking back when you're younger, man, I wish I knew that. Or man, I wish someone told me that. Or someone armed me with that truth. And it's up to parents to do that, to remember what those things are and teach their children what those things are. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Without question, without question. Now, I wanted to know your thoughts on the long term, you know, psychological, emotional effects. uh, If a child is raised in this constant anti-white environment, what is it going to do to them when they grow up? Well, I mean, we see it, don't we? We see all of these uh, anti-whites of of various stripes, mentally ill people walking our streets. It's just it is such a sickening sight. I had somebody just the other day who uh, contacted me on Twitter with the response of a white person, uh, supposedly purported to be a white person, who had just these just these vehemently self-hating uh, notions that they they were sharing by way of uh, Twitter, and the, this person was asking me what what what's happened with this person, what's going on, and the the, the simple answer is what I was speaking to a moment ago, and that is white noir. They are suffering from white noir. They are suffering from, and, and what what's, what's a part of white noir is being white guilted. Is this notion that you are inherently evil? How can you go through life? How can you tell a child 
that they are inherently evil and expect that they are not going to grow. And this is not like, you know, and this is folks, please understand, you can look at a movie, you can be watching a movie and you can say consciously, yes, I know this is just fiction, but subconsciously you don't know it's fiction. That's why I stress as often as I can to put more thought into what you imbibe by way of entertainment and news than what you put in your mouth, what you eat and drink, what you put on your skin, the inoculations, you know, the shots that you take for flu and, and, and those sorts of things. All of these things are important, but they pale in comparison to what you put in your mind because what you put in your mind is going to determine who and what you are, particularly when you are young. Because as I said a, a few moments ago, the deeper these things are buried in your mind, the more power they exercise over the character of who and what you are and what you become. So we see people who otherwise would have grown up to be potential heroes of our nation, who grow up instead thinking that they belong to another gender, who grow up instead indulging in all types of uh, drugs, self-destructive behavior. Why not? You're an evil person. You're from an evil group. You have to make amends. And more importantly, working like rabid uh, animals to inflict harm on Western kind. Why their own people? Why would they do that? Why? Because that is one of the ways that they make amends. What's well, another way that they make amends for being a member of an evil group? Probably the most salient is taking a member of another race for a boyfriend or girlfriend, a spouse producing children with them. But we see that even in those cases that the this is not enough for anti-whites. They say just having uh, non-white children doesn't mean that you're not racist anymore. So this it's always been about the infliction of harm. The evidence is, is laid out before us as clear as day. These are very sick people. And when we talk with them, we should talk with them uh, as one would when you're speaking with someone who's very ill. If you have and if you have somebody who is vehemently anti-white and this th here's a divider that I don't want to confuse anybody about. If you are out trying to persuade white people to mature sociopolitically, to come to the cause of white well-being, and that's really what it is, is a maturing process. People who are not already white positive in some way, shape, or form are sociopolitically immature. So if you were out there and you were looking for people to bring over to help mature uh, sociopolitically, as a salesman, you need to see yourself as a good salesman. You need to look for some the, the, the person who is going to buy the product, the person who might listen to what you have to say. And if you come across someone who is not going to buy the product, not going to buy the service, you need to get away from them as quickly as possible. Move on to the next person. They are not going to be valuable to you. Your time is limited. When you come across an anti-white, somebody who is sick, Lana, what you're talking about, these, these children that have been infected and they grow up believing and thinking these anti-white notions and hating themselves, if you come across one of those people, do not dig in and have a battle with them. It's not worth it. Talk to them the same way you would if you worked in a uh, St. Elizabeth's used to be called here the, the insane asylum outside of Washington, D.C. If you worked in St. Elizabeth's and somebody came up to you and said one of the one of the permanent residents came up to you and said that he or she was Napoleon. You wouldn't have a big debate with that person. You wouldn't tell them how wrong they are. You would just say, that's nice, dear, and you would move along. Yeah, now, we're, we're dealing with people that are essentially in a cult. You know, so I, I've argued this absolutely. a lot. We have to study more of uh, cult deprogramming. <laughs> I've been looking Precisely. into doing a show about that because that's what it is. 
Precisely. That's exactly what it is. And I can share a very short anecdote about a gentleman who uh, purchased GoFree, had not had any success uh, for several decades with his brother who had been anti-white. Everything he had tried to share with him and he was using, I asked him the methods he used to try to persuade his brother. They were all the old methods. It was all the, they bring endless reams of data, talk about all of these different uh, scenarios and comparisons. Like it's it's one thing to 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 point out the you know the to juxtapose the the hypocrisy the standards you have one standard for non-whites one standard for white people that's one level of coming to uh, socio-political maturity the ultimate level you have to reach when it comes to non or anti-whites is to realize that there is no hypocrisy all of their arguments end up in anti-white conclusions it just appears like there's hypocrisy because those arguments are countervailing they just have the same outcomes but what this gentleman did was he he took the ideas in Born Guilty and he the methods that I share in Born Guilty that I developed over time, uh, by the way, and experimented with and went back to his brother, em, employed those uh, ideas, came back to me and said, for the first time in our entire relationship, my brother is coming to our way of thinking. He's finally seeing the light. So it's just a matter of how you present these things to people. For most people, the old methods are just simply not going to work. They're just, they have proven themselves to be, uh, I, I guess, awkward, cumbersome, ineffective. And uh, for, uh, for a very small percentage of people, they will work. You know, the showing the, the showing the reams of data, the showing of all of the comparisons will work. But we need millions. So we are going to have to reach people in a way that uh, they can come to the cause and do so in a way that that is empowers them, makes them feel like they are participants uh, in that process of enlightening themselves and not having it rammed down their throat. And there is a way that that can be done. And I, I share those ideas. I share a lot of those ideas in Born Guilty. Yeah, sometimes I feel you just have to create new neural pathways in their brain. I mean, a lot of times we talk to people about some of these basic things that we talk about on the show, and the majority of people have just never heard it. But then there is a lot of people that respond to those basics when you say, why is it okay for this group, not okay for this group? And then they're stuck actually having to, to answer that. And hey, I never actually thought about that before. Some of the things that seem so simple to us and so basic, the majority of people haven't actually heard heard it or haven't actually thought of it. You know? mm. It's amazing. Yeah, precisely. And when you do this, uh, this is a tip that I can give people. When you do this, if you want to, if you want to show a comparison uh, wh where there's a real double standard uh, and well, this really depends on how close you are to the person. But if on average point out the, the you know, make the juxtaposition, show the disparity and then walk away. Don't then follow it up with, well, now let me tell you about all <laughs> of the other ways that uh, yeah. there's there are these disparities and what they're gentle. doing to our people over there. You just leave it there and I will tell you that you will have infinitely more success with that person. That 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 pill or that that piece of information will land like an atomic bomb on them and mm -hmm. then they'll grow. There's some saying, I don't know who it's attributed to, but it's that you, you, you can't teach a man anything. He has to find it out for himself. And that is indeed the case when it comes to winning people over to the truth. So we do have the truth. The truth is on our side. It's going to be easier to make our arguments and it's going to be easier for people to follow those trails to sociopolitical maturity. But we have to do so in a way that works with the un understanding of the human animal, the nature of the human beast. 
and stop working in these ways that are just too, I think, uh, I guess, too mechanical. It's like our minds as white people, we, and, and this works beautifully when it comes to the scientific method and building machines and building buildings and bridges and infrastructure. We think that everything can just be taken out of us, out of the, the human and the organic and put into this abstract world and that it, it'll work and fit there as beautifully as it does in the organic. But that is simply not the way it works. And I've been working on persuading people ever since I was 11 years old. I developed, I became very good at persuading people uh, to come to our cause, the opposite of what most people have as an experience in persuading people directly uh, connected to them. Uh, and uh, that method was a little too difficult to teach because it relied a lot on my ability to read my prospect. So I worked with uh, general forms, general dialectics that I could then teach, developed some very powerful dialectics. And that is what I share in uh, Go Free and in Born Guilty. That's great. That's great. Now, the big question a lot of people want to know is who and ultimately why? So why do they want to break down white people? Now, I did a video myself on this, why they want to replace white people, but I wanted to get your take on this. It's actually so, I don't want to say simple. It's so salient that it seems to be hard to see. It's like being up against one of those one of those paintings that is all that's made of nothing but dots. And when you're far enough away, you see you can see the entire picture. But if you are too close, you can't see what is because you have uh, jealousy and envy as motivators. Now, healthy people, we all experience jealousy and envy. Healthy people, when we experience it, we dismiss it to one degree or another, or we use it to motivate us. I've used it very often to motivate us. Say you see a, a rich person and you think, oh, I really would like to be rich like that. And then you use that to motivate you to work hard, to try to get ahead, etc. Unhealthy people, mentally unwell people, they instead, and I'm not saying just the psychotic, I'm just saying this is just an unhealthy thought process. They say to themselves, I have been victimized because I am, say, poor and they are rich. I am, say, ugly and they are beautiful. I am, say, sick and they are healthy. I've been victimized somehow. And that is a fertile soil to sell ideology to. So you have both white and non-white anti-whites. Now, the non-white anti-white, it's it's a little easier to understand why they would be jealous and envious. They look at the white race and they see a people who have, who has a glorious history. They see a people who have, who are responsible for 95 plus percent of all inventions and discoveries and creations. They see people who develop and build Western and, and maintain Western civilization, the envy of the world, what they know in their hearts that they want more than anything else, what they demonstrate uh, in their the, the, the direction they point their feet more than anything else, that Western civilization in their minds is the absolute best. They feel that deep jealousy and envy. In a white anti-white, you have someone who, even though they're white, for any particular reason, they feel themselves disconnected from that glorious history. 
So it might be, as I said a moment ago, they might be ugly, and, and so they hate the beauty of the white race. They might be stupid, and they hate the intelligence of the white race. They might be poor, and they hate the wealth of the white race. In that environment, you have the opportunity to sell people very profoundly on an argument that the reason why you are ugly, poor, sickly, whatever it may be. It's because of them, right? Is because is, of them. I mean, this is and then communist the average, tactics, right? The haves right. and the have-nots, right? It's all based on envy. Yeah, go on. Precisely. And then what ends up happening is Western kind in general becomes the avatar, you know, sort of the voodoo doll for the totality of Western kind, the people who they actually are envious of. So the white guy at the end of the street that may be, works at the same company that you do and is making the same amount of money that you do. And uh, he's not also anti-white. Well, he is as much a target as the white people that live in those castles in the next county over because he's part of that system that's not trying to tear down that system. So you think when when you have this mindset, you think that you are a victim. And when you believe that yourself a victim and you don't have a God to lash out against, you don't have fate that you can lash out against. You don't have some other inanimate object or chance that you can lash out against. All that you can lash out against in rage is this avatar. You gain the right of self-defense. That is why you see such righteous fury and indignation in their eyes and in their minds. They are righteously angry. They think that they have every right in the world, every justification in the world to take this fight to us because of their victimization. They, and it's them that's seeing themselves as the victims. Ultimately, what it comes down to is the anti-whites, people who are anti-white, want to punish the rest of us want to punish Western kind and uh, us, me as an avatar of Western kind, you as an avatar, you and Henrik as an avatar of Western kind, any general white person as an avatar of Western kind, they want to punish us for the feelings of inferiority that we inspire in them by merely being alive. That is what's motivating them. And then they are brought together and they appear to have unity. They appear to be united against this common cause, and the reason why they appear this way is because they all have a victim, which is Western kind, that they name their victimizer. And so there is this appearance of unity. Now, there can be among, like, maybe the, you know, some of the more psychotic and maybe wealthy ones, this desire to that, that they actually want to effectuate white erasure and they're going to they're going to implement a plan to accomplish that there can be that but there does not need to be a plan to accomplish white erasure all you need is the aggregate of the infliction of harm from all of these anti-whites and white erasure is then accomplished that is what we see across the west I think for the masses, that definitely applies. I think envy is a huge one, and the haves and the have-nots, it's a <laughs> huge thing. But what about globalist elites? What about the elites that already have everything, that aren't uh, necessarily envious? Why would they want white people out of the picture? Why do they enjoy when white kids are being programmed like this? Well, you're focusing solely on finances. These people can be fabulously wealthy. An anti-white, a white anti-white person can be fabulously wealthy and yet feel no connection 
to the glorious history of the West. They can be fabulously wealthy and have poor health and, and hate the white race for the for the health. But I think probably most prominently, they can be fabulously wealthy and hate the beauty that they were never born with that is evidenced in the West. There is also, of course, the dynamic at play that once you have a a a certain a, a certain uh, momentum that there is the momentum that feeds to it as well. Once you have, and I'll, I note this in Go Free, once you have these anti-whites holding positions of uh, power and prestige, then other motivators come into play as well. Uh, things like carnal pleasures that they get as a result. And we can think of the all of the uh, uh, non-whites that have been uh, permitted to invade Europe, permitted, permitted to invade the United States. Uh, so these people, and of course, a lot, and a lot of these people, a lot of these fabulously wealthy people, are simply not white, and so their envy of the glory of the West will never be satisfied by any sum of money, because it's a history that they don't have. So the only thing they can do is get rid of the rightful inheritors of that history. The only thing that they can do is inflict harm on the rightful inheritors of that history. That is another large motivator. I mean, we see the names of these people who are behind uh, some of these uh, largest of banks, these most powerful of movements, and they are simply not members of our community. Another thing that's important for, for viewers, especially new people, to understand is that when they look out across the landscape and they see like white judges or white politicians, that doesn't mean that white people are in power. Every single one of these people are anti-white. Every single one of these people are as much an enemy of or as much a victimizer of our people and our history as any non-white anti-white. And and we see it all the time when any of these people, as, as was recently the case uh, with a representative in the United States, you say something that can be construed to mean that you are not as anti-white as those who are behind the scenes, those who hold the real power, and you are immediately censured. And there Im immediately is a governmental resolution to denounce you and, and those ideas. So these people, the, the fact that you see whites holding any positions of power doesn't mean that white people are in power and, uh, and, and therefore there's a system there that has to be taken down, a system of oppression that has to be taken down, a, a system of privilege that has to be taken down. When, and when in fact, these people, these whites in charge are our victimizers, not the victimizers of the non-white community. Exactly, exactly. So let's fast forward. If the majority of white kids grow up and they're brainwashed to hate themselves, to feel guilt and shame, to reject their ancestors, what is the cost long term? White erasure. I mean, we are we are on the precipice now, folks. We are either going to be the generations that will be remembered for all time as heroes uh, whose whose efforts and whose genius is tantamount or even considered superior to everything that has gone before. Everything that is glorious and beautiful that our people have done is all is all hanging right now by a thread. All of the glory and the beauty and the science and the and the welfare 
and the, the, the curing of disease and the, the breaking through of the unknown that is ahead of us out in this world, in our oceans, in our solar system, all of that is out there for our people to achieve. And if we succeed, they will live and they will achieve those triumphs. We will be remembered as the, the great and glorious heroes of Western kind for all time. If we fail, the world will return to darkness. Our people will be reduced to a despised minority, and uh, they perhaps would only survive by being able to hide in, in pockets here or there around the globe where there weren't, I, I think ultimately, where they would have to be completely hidden uh, somehow because the hunger for our beauty, the hunger for our intelligence, the hunger for our women is insatiable. And we have to begin with those among us who are all, who are unfortunately uh, exist perhaps because we ha have had so many uh, wars that have taken so much good from us, from our blood over the years. And we are left with a very sick population. And it's those members of our, our communities that are aiding and they align themselves uh, with the outsiders who want to bring us down and are therefore more of our victimizers than anyone else. And we will have to deal with them before dealing with the others. So it is a matter of, uh, of handling the nearest problems first. And if we can do this, then we will be the, the great heroes, the, inherit, the rightful inheritors of, the, of our great Western civilization, and uh, then the progenitors of something far more glorious than even our most fantastic writers can imagine today. Well, I think you kind of answered the question I was going to have for you next about anything positive that's going to come out of this <laughs> when we come through all this. Uh, well, yes. I mean, there's going to be a lot positive. We are going to be a, a much more robust people. We're going to be a much healthier people. Uh, I think that in a, an environment where we have recaptured our destiny, uh, we will when confronted with people who are mentally defective, and make no mistake, I mean, anyone who would work for the detriment of their own kind is defective. Oh, yeah. it, it, it just is, if, if we were observing the behavior of raccoons, and we saw a specific group of raccoons who worked to undermine the survival of raccoons. So I watch possums. raccoons all the time, by the way, Jason. They're in my backyard. <laughs> I love them. And no, they never do that. <laughs> they never turn they on They never do that. I've never seen a raccoon do that either. But if they worked to undermine the welfare of uh, their own kind so that possums could flourish, we surely would write down in our journals that something very odd had happened to the raccoons, There's at least this specific group of them, uh, and that uh, they were not well, they were not mentally well. And we can certainly say, we can turn that microscope on our own people, and we can certainly say the same thing for our people. Now, having said that, uh, a majority of the anti-white white people today are not mentally unhinged. They are not mentally defective. They are merely mouthing what the powers that be demand of them to mouth. They are merely just trying to get through their lives. So they are people we can get to. But in the future, when we have recaptured our destiny, when these people do show up and they are defective and they want to undermine our survival, 
uh, we will simply it, it will depend, I'm sure, on the time and the context. But I think it would be totally appropriate to invite them to leave and maybe to inv- drop them off in a, a country of uh, of their choosing that is non-white. And then they can fulfill whatever destiny that might be for them in that land rather than destroying what we have in ours. We see this, in fact, all the time where they vote for uh, what uh, what destroys us, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, what destroys our communities, and then they flee from it and vote for the same things in the white, safe communities that they land in. Well, Jason, it's been great having you here. I definitely want to have you back, get some more information out of you because you always have a lot of good stuff to share. And I hear you're an excellent public speaker, by the way. But tell people how to get the book uh-huh. and also uh, a bit about your live streaming because it seems like you're always live streaming these days. Uh, well, uh, nowhiteguilt.org is my website, so nowhiteguilt.org. The links to all of my social media platforms are there, uh, including uh, my main Facebook page, which is No White Guilt. I have a show called The After Party. We refer to it as TAP. Uh, my co-host is uh, Jared George of The Great Order, a brilliant man. That show usually occurs on Fridays. Uh, at around 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm also on This Week on the Alt-Right on Mark Collette's channel, and that is at 2 to 4 on Wednesdays. I'm live streaming on uh, camera most of the time now these days, so you'll be able to uh, see me. We take questions from the audience. I plan on doing more videos uh, in 2019 regarding the specific dialectic Uh, and lexicon of go free because these are the things that have to be shared to really empower people and this is really my intent is to empower uh, our audience i have no desire and for far too long i'm afraid we've had too many people who were focused on preening themselves like peacocks and having an audience that walks away saying isn't he or she so smart but then they're not able to reproduce any of that when they get with their friends and family i want to give you tools And that's what I'm doing. I give you tools so that you can take these arguments right to your friends and family and have success with them. But really quick before I go, I just want to mention that in Born Guilty, uh, you will there's one book that's called Crucible. And if you are comfortable with uh, contemporary fiction and nonfiction novels, uh, that is the voice that Crucible is written in. It's an inspiring story. Uh, it is a is a true story about my time in junior high school and my struggle against the administration, uh, the teachers and my peers. I was attacked physically by these non-whites. I never lost a fight. It is a heroic story. I decided, despite all of my fears, that I would be a man and I would always behave as a man, no matter how scared I felt inside. There was a big tug of war inside of myself the entire time because I wanted to be liked by the girls. I wanted to uh, have my groups of friends back that all abandoned me. So there was there was a big struggle there. That is, this book, Born Guilty, is not like what you normally get in the cause. Normally you get something with a some description of what's going on, stories about how bad it is, how good it used to be, endless reams of data, a lot of mind-numbing stuff. There is, uh, there's no storytelling. In this book there is storytelling, as I say, that's in Crucible, that's inside of Born Guilty. There's also a book called Prometheus Rising inside of Born Guilty that if you are attracted to or you like fiction in the vein of Lord of the Rings, 
that you will absolutely love that story. It is a thrilling tale about the creation of our people. It has a narrative arc that tracks from that time to this. Prometheus, I, I rewrite him. Uh, so he's not the exact same God as from Greek myth. He, in fact, is our creator. Uh, and uh, I write that book in sort of a lyrical style. Um, that'll be something that if you are into that sort of genre, that will appeal to you. And throughout the totality of that story, uh, it is it is full of uh, didactic lessons that you can that you can cull and and use in your everyday life. Prometheus is as our creator. He is imbued with our strengths and our weaknesses. So uh, there is there's that as well. And then there's a lot there's politics. If you're into politics, you are with me. Uh, in Born Guilty, you come to visit me uh, in Born Guilty, and I, I break the fourth wall. I speak directly to you as the reader. Uh, I worked on the Hill in the nerve center of the conservative movement. We held uh, meetings every week with White House staff and uh, uh, Congress members, and all of it was off the record. We would have Secret Service pull up to a nondescript building. They would enter through a nondescript door and they would enter into a, a plush meeting room. All of the heads of the largest conservative groups in the country would be present and we would discuss their plans, ideas, what's going on. I share some of that with you in these sort of vignettes while I'm with you in my study in uh, Born Guilty. Uh, there are even though it's not a graphic novel in the sense of like comic books, there are over 200 sketches uh, in the book uh, that uh, help you to understand your environment while you're in the study with me. So uh, you, uh, you learn about where you are by way of these sketches. You also dream while you're with me. I'm your guide and host for two days. We break bread uh, while, you, while we're together. Uh, and uh, so really is experimental literature. Uh, let me just, if I could, I, I actually have a piece of uh, Crucible that I think if I could just read a, a, a bit of to give readers, because a lot of people are interested in contemporary novels and we just don't see that uh, in our movement. As the class fawningly applauded, well, let me just, I'll just say I'm in class my teacher is Mrs. Sargent, and she brought in a woman by the name of Dr. McIntyre, who's a rabid anti-white woman. This really happened. Uh, she was brought into the class to tell us about, you know, how evil the white race is ultimately. So just a snippet, uh, a, a page and a quarter from this. Uh, as the class fawningly applauded and McIntyre began her lecture, I lapsed into the recent news that Cordell was recruiting non-whites to jump me and that Lamont Riddick was going to blind me and burn my jacket. By the way, my jacket had a Confederate flag I had sewn to the back. But my fears were slowly eclipsed by McIntyre's vile screed. It was the purest anti-white race terrorism I had ever heard. McIntyre railed against Western civilization. She arrogantly sermonized about society's structure, bludgeoning us with the ridiculous notion that it was intentionally designed to benefit whites at the expense of non-whites, like a hermaphroditic high priestess or rabbi of the new anti-white religion, she loftily affirmed that the institutions themselves were racist, and as a consequence, white people, willingly and unwillingly, unfairly benefited from invisible advantages she called white privilege. Most of the class appeared hypnotized by her anti-white venom, but I was furious, and Mrs. Sargent knew it. 
She repeatedly threw me the dreaded evil eye as McIntyre self-importantly fumed and belched like a smokestack against everything I held dear. Sergeant knew what I was thinking. She knew I wanted to defend my people and Western civilization. With every fiber of her being, she attempted to intimidate me by bristling with female aggression, narrowing her eyes to bulldoze me as she likely bulldozed her cringing, obedient husband. But I ignored her terrifying display. I wanted to pay close attention to McIntyre's misandrous anti-white propaganda. With a thick, otherworldly gaze sluggishly crawling over her small, sharp eyes, McIntyre avowed in a religious fervor that all whites are racist, that even she was an unwitting racist, that we might not actively think racist thoughts or commit racist acts, but we are nonetheless inherently racist. And consequently, it is our duty to dig deep into ourselves and society to uncover our racism, admitting it, owning it. And then she solemnly declared, can only then, she solemnly declared, can we cure this horrific blight? She wasn't finished, but I raised my hand and began speaking. I have a question. Jason hissed Sergeant from her desk as if she were perched in a guard tower with a rifle, scowling in the ugliest face she could pull. We may have time for questions when I'm finished, frowned McIntyre, as though she wanted to silence me with a ball gag, the scent of her man-hatred wafting about the room like ozone from a rusty power transformer, buzzing and snapping dangerously. I just want to make sure I understand before we move on, I innocently enough proceeded. Jason, growled Sergeant, bringing her hands down hard on her desk with a sharp clasp rising from her chair like a great pear-shaped balloon coming to life. So, I doggedly continued, turning back to McIntyre, our white privilege is invisible. That's correct, she hesitantly answered, sensing a trap, casting an apprehensive eye at Sargent. And so that is the style that uh, Crucible is written in. So if you're comfortable with fiction and nonfiction novels, you'll be very comfortable with that. And you'll be very happy uh, with the fact that uh, unlike your normal fiction and nonfiction novels, it is uh, we who win the day <laughs> yeah. rather than Sounds the Sounds like McIntyre was a feminist, huh? Yeah. She was beyond bestial, I must say. She was a rabid feminist. She was rapidly uh, anti-white. And uh, I will just go ahead and, and give away that I ended up storming out of that classroom. Good for you. It's amazing that you knew these things at such a young age and you know, i'm blown away by that well you know what all our children going forward yeah all you people listening that is how our children are going to be <laughs> moving from here on out we're on to their shtick well thank right. you jason so much for dropping by today we'll definitely have you back for more in the near future okay i thank you so much for having me i gotta say looking at white college kids today i've never seen so many white youths with no confidence and no self-esteem well, what do you expect? They sit in classes five days a week hearing about how awful and evil their white ancestors are. Marxist programming is making white kids weak, easy to bully, take advantage of, and even steal from. And the parents who have enabled this disgust me. But as the boomer fades, a new generation of parents won't be so easy. Love you all. You are why we do what we do. Even with strikes on YouTube, limited videos, banning, censorship, defamation, people are still finding us. 
A special thanks to you, Red Eyes members. You are a key component, a vital aspect in facilitating what we do. We couldn't do it without you. Our members help us fight back against the anti-white establishment. And trust me, they have millions of dollars, billions of dollars of resources at their disposal. We have orgs who receive millions a year on our tail trying to get us removed from everything. So we do need your backing. Not yet a member? Head on over to redicemembers.com. Love you all. See you on the next one.